it is time for the self-evident podcast welcome i am mike it is sunday night 7 p.m uh you may notice massey's not here it's because massey is out at the homeschool convention he's uh just finishing up in missouri if you were at the homeschool convention either this weekend or uh, what was it last weekend welcome guys thank you so much for joining us mike the co-host of the self-evident podcast I want to welcome you all tonight. We've got a great show tonight. This is something, guys, that I've been wanting to cover for a long time. And it's something that I think everybody needs to know. Because too often, stuff gets just kind of glossed over in terms of who Karl Marx is. And we tend to just think, well, he's the father of communism. I think we tend to picture him in a certain way. But tonight, I'm, I'm going to destroy all of those thoughts about what most people think he is. This guy was not a good guy. Uh, this this guy proved himself to be a real dirty scoundrel, and that's that's why the title is the way it is. But before we do that, before we get into everything, do not forget to check out all of our social media sites. We've got the Facebooks, we've got the YouTubes, we've got the iTunes, we've got the Spotify, the SoundCloud. We're on Instagram. Check us out. Don't forget the alternative platform stuff, like the BitChutes and the Parlors and uh, Rumble. Check that stuff out. Make sure to give us a comment. Let me know where you guys are from. Let me know uh, what you think of tonight's podcast topic. If you have any questions, feel free to post them. We're going to try and get Richard to uh, let me know um, any big questions you might have. But thank you so much for joining us. I don't know. Are you guys ready to get into it? Because I am. It's time. So let's start with the news bits. Let's go to slide one. Because this story I thought was really interesting. Uh, Baltimore decided to stop prosecuting low-level crimes. Sounds like fun. Maybe I'll move to Baltimore. I can, you know, be all about the prostitution and the drug offenses and the traffic offenses as well. So the state's attorney, Marilyn Mosby, she announced that the city would permanently suspend uh, prosecution of prostitution, drug possession, minor traffic offenses, and other so-called quality-of-life crimes. Now, here's what happened. The city had previously gotten rid of uh, prosecuting these types of crimes during COVID. And, of course, they stated that, well, violent crime was lower. So, therefore, it must mean that not prosecuting those crimes meant, hey, violent crime is down. So they decided they are going to make it permanent. Uh, they had said violent crime has declined 20% and property crime 36%. Now, you may wonder, okay, what's going on with that? Why, how, how does crime go down when all of a sudden you're not prosecuting crimes? Won't criminals say, hey, they don't care, so I might as well do it. There's a couple of factors here. So first off, do not forget that this was during COVID, during the lockdowns. And so a lot of cities nationwide saw crimes like this go down. Why? Because people were forced to be in their homes. They were forced to stay. Now, you saw homicides rise up in other countries or other cities. Baltimore stayed about the same. Um, so that, that is something interesting in Baltimore that happened, but that seems to be more of a, an exception than the rule. The other part of this is they're going on arrest data. This merely reflect, reflects arrests. So if you stop making the arrest, of course those crimes are going to go down. It's kind of like... Well, we're not going to prosecute any crime whatsoever. We have 0% crime now. 
Well, of course, because you're not making any arrests. You're not making any prosecutions on it. And this is that type of idea that seems to be moving fast through the country. You've got it in California uh, with the, what is it, L.A., or, or the Attorney General. Uh, I can't think of his name, Garcia. I'm sure somebody will probably post it. But this guy has come in and basically said, we're going to completely reform the whole criminal justice system. And basically wants to start just letting people out and not prosecuting crimes. This He is getting a lot of pushback because what he's ending up doing is saying even stuff like murder. Well, well we got to be careful about how, we, how long a sentence we actually give somebody. This isn't going to last for Baltimore. And you're going to watch what happens in Baltimore and say, see, I told you so. Because give it a year or two, and now that the lockdowns are, are for the most part over, supposedly, they're going to see crime start climbing up. And especially in the other cities that decide they're going to defund their police, they're going to limit their police presence, they're going to shrink the police departments down, what did they see? They saw massive crime spikes. And I think you're going to see that in Baltimore pretty quick here because now they've made it public, don't worry about it, do what you want. Because what happens if you're not prosecuting drug crimes? It's basically telling people, okay, go ahead and, and commit, or go ahead and take drugs. Which, personally, I'm not even really all that for drug crimes, but at the same time, I'm going to make an argument a bit against myself in the sense that if you start allowing drug crime and you say, we're not going to prosecute this, what happens when that guy runs out of money for the drugs? What does he do? All of a sudden, he decides he's going to rob somebody or he's got to do a break-in. Before you get all hoity-toity on me, just look at the statistics. If somebody is hooked on something like heroin or meth, it's pretty close gap to them starting to commit other crimes in order to be able to continue to fuel the habit. Now, if, if somebody is placed in jail for a drug crime, at least there's that time for them to try and detox and, and rehabilitate. Now, you can talk about, okay, what's the rehabilitation rate? That's, that's not really part of this conversation. Uh, but we're going to watch this happen, and you will see crime start to spike in Baltimore. Every other city that has tried to attack police presence and tried to shrink the police effectiveness ends up ruining the day. So let's go to slide two. Let's, let's move on to this. So this is something else that I found was interesting. This Christian college removed a memorial to martyrs because of pejorative language. It called the killers of these missionaries savages. Now, this, this plaque was put up in 1957 by Wheaton College, honored the memories of a group of missionaries who were killed by the Weorani people in Ecuador. The text of this plaque reads, The men chose the jungles of Ecuador, Inhabited by the Aka Indians, for generations, all strangers were killed by these savage Indians. After many days of patient preparation and devout prayer, the missionaries made the first friendly contact known to history with the Akas. On January 8, 1956, the five missionaries were brutally slain, martyrs for the love of God. Now, because of the use of the word savage, People have decided, well, that plaque can't exist anymore. We've got to get rid of that plaque. We've, we've got to reword all of this stuff. It's not that big of a deal in the sense of, okay, they're going to reword the plaque and put it back up. 
But at the same time, this word, we are getting so nitpicky about words that we've determined ourselves to have to change something every couple of years when all of a sudden a word is not acceptable in the lexicon anymore. Now, I want to read you the definition of savage. Not domesticated or under human control, untamed savage beasts, one. Or lacking the restraints normal to civilized human beings, fierce, ferocious. Old-fashioned, offensive, wild, uncultivated, boorish, rude, malicious, lacking complex or advanced culture. Now, as a noun, old-fashioned plus offensive, a person belonging to a primitive society, a brutal person, a rude or unmannerly person. Does that definition fit what happened to those missionaries? I would say that if a tribe of people killed anybody who came near them and a group of missionaries make friendly contact with that group and then they're slain still, I'm going to say that maybe it's okay to call that group a savage group. They're savage. Why is it so bad to use that word? Why is that connotation wrong? We look at it and... and there are plenty of people who get offended and say, well, you can't use that word for them. Let's look back at the definition. So are they uh, belonging to a primitive society? I would say probably yes. Are they brutal? Considering they killed everybody who came in contact with them, yes. Um, are they lacking the restraints normal to civilized human beings? Let me ask you a question. When was the last time somebody knocked on your door and you killed them? Now, I'm not saying that doesn't happen in the world, but civilized society does not do that. They don't automatically kill somebody who's come into contact with it. And it's, it's not even a, a considering how horrible these people are, but that term fits. And you got to understand, I'm an English major, guys. I, I have an English degree. Language and literature is, is a passion of mine. And I see this movement of taking away words and deciding, well, this word can't exist anymore. That word can't be used. That word's wrong. That word's now offensive. At some point, and, and this is what progressivism does, is it takes a word and it changes it or it, it redefines it, whether for good or worse. It, it tells you, well, you're not allowed to use this word anymore. And what they end up doing is they end up controlling the language. And when they control the language, what ends up happening is you're no longer, you're, you're caught unawares. You're caught one step behind. You're no longer with the process, right? So you've got to catch up. One day the word savage is okay. The next day that word's not okay. You can't use that word anymore. That's offensive. So then all of a sudden you've got to reset and go, okay, what, what word am I supposed to use? Because I can't call them uncivilized because that's offensive, saying that my civilization is better than their civilization. I can't call them um, uh, tribalistic because that has bad connotations as well, you know. And, and the, we can't say that they're primitive because that oh, that's just totally offensive. Maybe they're advanced in their own ways. Notice you can't use any words anymore, and this will continue to happen. And, and I'm not just sounding the doom bell. I'm saying, pay attention to this. And at some point, you're going to have to stand up and use a word that the lexicon uses. 
and use the word that's standard and established because they go after established words, especially when you're considering nouns or adjectives. This story, yeah, it's it seems so simple. It seems so trite and tiny. But really what this story is is indicative of a bigger situation going on. And I'm going to stand up and say that I don't agree with changing the words all the time. We don't have to change the words. Are there certain words that are already offensive that we don't use in our lexicon? Of course. That's fine. There are words that have so much weight and history behind them that it's better to not use those words. But you know what the next step becomes for those words? All of a sudden, hate crimes. And I actually had a story that I, I took out because I wanted to switch some things around, but I'll, I'll give you a basic summary. In, in, I believe it was Illinois, there was this family getting out at a CVS. And the, the story was unclear whether it was a complete black family or if it was a black daughter with white parents or, or how the situation was. But there were multiple, there was, there was at least one black person in this family. And this white guy comes out and sees them and comes up to them and does the Nazi salute and starts saying, yelling white power at them over and over and over. He didn't touch them. He didn't, it doesn't sound like he threatened them. And I'm not at all condoning what he did. But you know what he got charged with? Hate crime. So now because he said some words to them, he didn't touch them. He didn't threaten them. But he said a statement. He was charged with a hate crime. Now, do I think the guy's a good guy? No. You know what? Somebody I completely disagree with. Somebody that I would stand up to if I saw it happening. But at the same time, I'm not going to say that man needs to be arrested, charged with a hate crime. And you're not all that far away from if you call a tribe savage, oh, well, that's a hate crime against that tribe. Words are now becoming hate crimes. We covered it last week in Canada. Canada, a man was put in jail because he used the wrong pronoun and refused to use the right pronoun for his daughter who's transitioning. This stuff will have weight. So make your line now, guys. Determine now what you're going to do. All right. Story number three, and then we're going to get into the main topic. Slide number three. Let's do it. So anybody watch the press conference? I watched it. I thought it was hilarious. Extremely sad, but hilarious. This was a mess absolute mess picture surfaced of biden having a list of reporters and numbers next to their names on which one to call on next and at one point he even fumbles it to where he's looking at the sheet basically saying who do i who am i supposed to call on next oh oh yeah have you ever seen a president having a sheet with pictures and little bios of each reporter numbered on who you were going to call and notice conveniently he left fox news out of it which I'm not even that big fan, big of a fan of Fox News, but they seem to be the only even milk toast contrarian uh, news site. One point he's asked about gun control. Did anybody else witness it? And I was I was watching Crowder's commentary on this, and 
they, along with me at home, watched this and wondered, did we miss something? Because what happened was Biden's asked about gun control and he starts talking about infrastructure. Literally starts just going on the infrastructure train. Like gun control wasn't even in his mind or his thought process. And the Crowder stream and myself, did I did I miss that? Did, where did the change come? There must have been something. But no, sure enough, he just danced right over to infrastructure. There were plenty of times where he looked like he was out to lunch, guys. One point, he walks away from the podium and is kind of just walking around and starts to answer the question while he's starting to walk back to the podium. This is embarrassing. It's only going to get worse. Why do you think they waited so long to have a press conference with him? He's he misdirected all over the place. He couldn't find his thoughts. He went up, he went down, he got angry for no reason and calmed back down for no reason. And then he made a lot of claims. So I'm going to go through some of these claims. Here's here's the meat of this story. So he claimed their goal was 100 million vaccines by day 100 and he claimed it, it was met, which it was by day 59. The problem is between December 14th, January 20th, 21.7 million doses had already been administered. This program was up and running thanks to Trump, even though every time Biden tries to say that it's Trump's fault, Trump didn't do it. Trump's the only one who didn't. He even said Trump was the only one who, what was it, Got was soft on China. What? In order to hit the 100 million by 100 days from January 20 onwards, they would have only needed to administer 783,000 per day. On inauguration day, they had administered 1.5 million doses. I would say they were up and running. They ran a seven-day average of 996,000 per day. So now he has his new goal, 200 million in 100 days. This is crazy ambitious. This is so ambitious per his words. Our rolling average right now is above 2 million doses a day with a peak recently of 2.3 million. The average they would need is 1.86 million. So they would have to slow down in order to make this an ambitious goal. He claimed we're doing more than anybody else in the world. Pure numbers? Absolutely. We're doing 39 per 100 million um, or per 100. Sorry. Israel has done 111 per 100. UAE, 47 per 100. Monaco, 47. Bahrain, 44. Now, don't forget, we have a very large population. And it's much harder in, in a large area to go across as well. So it does take a lot more logistics for us to handle our 330, 340 million people as opposed to a place like Israel, which you know, Israel across is what, like 60, 70 miles, something like that. So you have these smaller countries that, of course, they have an easier time administering to their people. So in a way, Biden's half correct, but of course, he's trying to spin the ultimate optis, optimistic side on the whole thing. He also claimed that they were going to have a goal to open the majority of K-8 through schools. His earlier promise, though, was to open schools, not just K-8. through You move the goalpost, suddenly... You can hit your goal. That's all you have to do. Move the goalpost. You make it. Yay, we won. So he claimed migration increases were worse under Trump. No, 
Okay, they used percentages. Biden said there was a 28% increase between January and February for him. For Trump last year, 31%. So I want to go through these numbers because this is this is important to watch. January 2019, 58,317 attempted to cross. 76,545 in February. This was a 31% increase. Look at Biden's numbers. January 2021, 78,442 attempted to cross. February, 100,441 attempted to cross. That's your 28%. This means there was 34.5% more people attempted to cross under Biden than Trump. You see that difference? So he's saying, well, you know, our percentage is better than Trump. Look at the overall numbers. Don't forget, have something like 6,000 a day. We've got a, uh, there's a center that's 1,500% over capacity. Another center, 700% over capacity. And you may have seen the whole, the Ted Cruz videos that are going the rounds now where they're trying to shut down these videos and pictures. I wonder why. wonder why what's going on. Why all of a sudden do you not want people to see the great and awesome, amazing job that you're doing? And why is it when the reporters ask you, Mr. Biden, that, hey, when do we get to see the detention centers? You say, when, I'm, when they're ready. Uh, then I'll show you. Wouldn't that be great? Can I see your homework? When it's ready. Can I see your test? When it's ready, maybe. And meanwhile, you're on the computer looking up the answers, right? He's, he is, <laughs> it's not even him. But this administration is really falling apart at the seams because they've tried to institute these policies and they don't think about the, the consequence or the effect. And then these policies get instituted, then things start falling apart and they have to lie and lie and lie and lie and lie to cover their butts. And the immigration is a big one that's blowing up in their face and is going to continue to do so. And we need to press them because if we don't, they'll sweep it under the rug. Everybody will forget about it. And all of a sudden you've got millions and millions of new voters, which mind you, I want to point this out, talking about the voting thing. For the People Act, requires that you be registered when you get a driver's license, but then forbids voter ID. So when you go to register for your ID, you get registered for voting, but then you can't use that ID for voting. Excuse me? Do you see this? Let's, let's cut out the middleman. Here, I'll solve it for you, Democrats. You're so worried about this. Let's make the driver's license process free. Now you can't have a complaint at all because anybody can get a driver's license. Mind you, though, get your Social Security, get your welfare, driver's license. Get your library book, driver's license. Ride the bus across state lines, driver's license. Ride the train, ride the airplane, driver's license. But vote. No, we... We don't do that. We don't do that. But we'll register you to vote when you get your driver's license. Because that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? This is so frustrating to watch. I'm sure it's frustrating for you guys. Pay attention to it. Pay attention to it. When you actually look through that bill, it's it's nasty. So when you're talking to your friends and they, well, I think, you know, we really need to stand up for voting rights. Ask them, okay. Why do we register people when they get a driver's license, but then forbid them to use that ID when they vote? 
if they can make it to get a driver's license, they can make it to vote. And they can use that brand new shiny driver's license. Any questions, comments, feel free to throw them in there. Let me know what you guys think. But it's time to get into Mark's. And there's a reason I am wearing this T-shirt. You may have noticed the title, Mark's the Dirty Scoundrel. And people may think that I'm actually, uh, I'm, I'm being extreme. I'm not. And we're going to go through this. We're going to, first I'm going to cover kind of his biography, but you're going to, you're, you're going to appreciate the truth about who this guy really was. So let's get started. Marx was one of nine children born in 1818 to Jewish parents. Uh, his father converted to Christianity before his birth, um, some people suspect this was due because of a social status type thing. You know, Jews were, were the lower social status, and he could be a part of high society if he was Christian. Uh, Marx took neither of these. He ended up becoming atheist, and he was the one who wrote that religion was the opium of the masses. So about two semesters into school at the University of Bonn, Marx was imprisoned for drunkenness, incurred debts, and participating in a duel. So this just gives you a sliver, okay? That, that's just a preface of this stuff. His father enrolled him instead into the University of Berlin where he studied law and philosophy. His father funded his studies. Another pattern that you will see emerge. Okay, he was a well-educated man. He had a PhD uh, in philosophy. So he should have been able to become a professor, right? He should have been able to make a living with a PhD. Uh, but you'll see this was never the case. Um, he became radically involved with various political groups and ideologies, notably the young Hegelians. Uh, he was sympathetic with their attack on Christianity, but then he started to attack the group because there were ideas that diverged. He became the editor of a liberal newspaper in 1842, which was banned by the Prussian government. Uh, he met Frederick Ingalls, who this, this was his, his partner. In, in crime, basically. They were, they were two like minds, and they, they moved through pretty much the rest of life together. Uh, so much so that Engels spoke at Marx's funeral. He spoke at Marx's wife's funeral. Um, they, two peas in a pod. And that's important to note because there, I have some stuff here that Engels said about Marx, about who he was. And so these guys were very well connected and very close, yet Engels said some interesting things about who Marx was. And so Marx and Engels started to write in Paris. Um, he ended up being expelled by the Prussian government out of France. So he moved to Brussels. Uh, Brussels nearly kicked him out. So he ended up in London where he lived the rest of his life. He and Engels then published the Communist Manifesto at the request of the newly founded Communist League. Marx became a journalist in London, should have been able to support his family, but he couldn't. So what's ironic about Marx is that he focused on economics and the evils in capitalism, but he couldn't support his own fi family financially. They lived in extreme poverty. The majority of his money went to alcohol and cigarettes. His place was described as a pigsty by a friend. In fact, there was a time when his wife didn't let him leave the house because she pawned off his pants for food. The guy didn't even have pants because they needed food. His wife, Jenny, frequented pawnbrokers, and Marx couldn't keep accounts. Comment famously attributed to his mother is well-fitting because she said 
If only Karl made capital instead of just writing about it. Here's what you notice with communism and, and Karl Marx especially. He wanted to abolish private property. He wanted to get rid of the system of capitalism, which is using money to make more money, right? If I'm a business owner, I use capital in order to grow my business and then I reap the profits. And Marx didn't like that. Marx didn't like inheritance. Yet he survived off inheritance and was always bugging his parents for, for inheritance and was so mad at his father that his father wouldn't continue to pay for him that he skipped his father's funeral. He refused to come home. And I'll read some things he said about his mom too. But let's look at, at just the physical of this guy. So Prussian police spy reports stated, Washing, grooming, and changing his linens are things he does rarely, and he likes to get drunk. He has no fixed times for going to sleep or waking up. As for the family apartment, everything is broken down, busted, spilled, smashed, falling apart. In a word, everything is topsy-turvy. To sit down becomes a thoroughly dangerous business. He himself was covered in boils. A biographer wrote the boils varied in number, size, and intensity, but at one time or another, they appeared on all parts of his body, including his cheeks, the bridge of his nose, his bottom, which meant he could not write, and they brought on a nervous collapse marked by trembling and huge bouts of rage. Now, his doctors seemed baffled about what was calling, causing the boils, especially because nobody else in the family were getting them, um, but we could guess that it was the lack of bathing. Other people always commented about how dirty this guy was. So let's let's take one pause and look at it. We have a guy who had boils all over his body, most likely because he refused to wash. His home was torn apart. Nothing was washed. He was drunk all the time. He was in stricken poverty because he never seemed to want to actually just sit get down to work enough to make money for his family. He was all about inheritance and money from other people, which we'll continue with looking at. And now I want you to base an entire political philosophy off of this guy. And notice what that philosophy says. Money for everybody. I want your money. You, you don't deserve to have what you worked for. All of us deserve to have what you worked for. Is this coming a little bit clearer now? You have to look at the source of the ideology, the source of the philosophy. And this guy was a mess in his life. And we haven't even gotten into the, the spiritual and the personality yet. We're just looking at the physical. So would you trust, I get what you normally think of Marx. You normally think this well-educated university guy, which he was, but always mind in his books, proper, deep thinker, sitting around with a pipe with his friends, talking about these issues, figuring things out, passionate for, for the movement or the philosophy that he had. And to some extent, yeah, maybe. But look at his personal life. Does, is that not indicative of who this man was? And let me ask you, is that a philosophy that you want to follow? And what type of philosophy coming from a man who lived this life is going to produce? What conclusion do you get from that type of philosophy? Get what you need from anybody else. You're not allowed to own your own stuff. Freedom for everybody in terms of sexuality and all of that. He wanted to abolish the family, even though he had a family. 
this two and two do not make four in this scenario. This doesn't make sense in this scenario. But I'm going to continue, just in case you're thinking, oh, well, you know, it doesn't really matter how he lived his physical life. It's, it's his mind. The theory of communism, right? The aim was to abolish private property. Not only did he not have property of his own, he lived off yearly allowance from Ingalls, his partner, and his parents. He was never satisfied with the amounts he was given. There are many accounts of him going to his parents for funds. When his father died, Right, He refused to travel for the funeral, upset that he had been cut off. Marx wrote to his friend Arnold after an argument with his mother, stating, My family, in spite of their wealth, put obstacles in my way which placed me, for the moment, in the most straitened circumstances. He even accused his mother of skullduggery. As his mother continued to refuse sending him more money, he wrote to Engels in 1854, I can do nothing with my old woman who still keeps herself in Trier unless I sit on her neck. In 61, he sent another scathing, scathing letter to Ingalls after a letter, letter from his mother stating, I got a reply from my old lady yesterday. Nothing but affectionate talk, but no cash. She also told me what I have known for a long time, that she is 75 years old and feels many of the infirmities of age. After both parents died, he received a fairly large inheritance. Uh, he quickly squandered it. This is in spite of the fact that his communist manifesto called for the abolition of all rights of inheritance, right? When Ingalls' girlfriend died. So think about this. Your, your good friend, your partner in work, your philosophical partner, the woman who this guy loves or as close to love as, as can be possible, she dies. What type of letter do you write? I am so sorry. I just, words cannot express for your loss. I, I, I want to be there for you. Anything you need, let me be there for you. You will get through this. This loss hurts, but we can move forward. You want to know what Marx said? Marx responded, the devil knows there's nothing now but ill luck where we are. I simply don't know anymore where to turn. My attempts to rake up money in France and Germany have failed. Besides, the children have no shoes or clothing to go out in. That's in the letter that he wrote in response to Engels' letter saying that his girlfriend died. At the end, Marx flat out asked for money. So you had two lines that were sympathy, 31 lines talking about Marx's financial woes. This guy was obsessed with money. It's all he thought about. And not just in the sense of economics and, and how to make more or, or how to transfer wealth this way to help these people or, or how to grow the pie. It was about how could he get more money from other people. So what do we got? I, I'm going to pause here. It looks like we got a question. Can you read it for me, Richard? Socialism is a philosophy, philosophy of failure. The creed of, ignorance. the creed of ignorance and the gospel of envy. It's inherent virtue is equal sharing of misery. Winston Churchill. Beautiful. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Uh, Thatcher said, you know, socialism works until you run out of everybody else's money, right? This, this is a very nasty philosophy. And if you have people who, are, who like socialism, like Marxism, like communism, I want you to show them this podcast. I want you to tell them, hey, you need to know who Marx was first. Because that determines what philosophy comes out of the person, right? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's scripture. 
What's the abundance of Marx's heart? Look at this. Look at the abundance of Marx's heart. And I'm not done yet. His family life, his personal relationships in general weren't stellar. Okay. By the time of his father's death, after arguments supposedly relating to Marx's social respectability, their relationship was estranged. Carl didn't go to his funeral, like I had said. Both his father and Engels described Marx as one having demons, which we'll get to that a little bit later. It's been said they had a great family situation. He was a great family man. His daughters supposedly adored him, and they were highly educated. He spent a lot of time with them because he wasn't working a whole lot. They were also immersed in his radical politics. He was very venomous about putting his anti-Christian beliefs into them, uh, steering them away from anything Christian. And in 1862, he wrote a letter to Engels noting that every day his wife expressed a wish to die. Such was her misery. Does that sound like a beautiful, awesome family dynamic? And another, he asserted, blessed is he who has no family, playing off the whole Christian thing. So let's go to what happened to his family. His wife died in 1881, which Marx did not attend the funeral, supposedly too weak and sick to go. Engels gave a eulogy saying, this place where we stand is the best proof that she lived and died in the full conviction of atheist materialism. I do not want anything close to that spoken at my, at my funeral. Marx died two years later with two red wreaths over his casket, casket symbolizing communism. Engels again gave the eulogy invoking Darwin instead of God. Marx admired Darwin. Marx, part of the communist theory was actually built off Darwinism. Believing Darwin had dealt a grand blow for materialism and atheism. What about the rest of his family? Four of his six children died before he did, including his oldest daughter, Jenny. The two who survived him committed suicide after he died. Both of his daughters died in suicide packs. One daughter, after finding out her husband was cheating on her, this guy was just like Marx, a massive temper, horrible with money, very left-wing, running around on her. She lived with him before marriage, yet he continued to cheat on her. All of their associates were shocked at how he treated her. She tried to kill herself once, but failed. And then her husband convinced her to do a suicide pact. She succeeded. Uh, he did not keep the promise. He ran off to his 22-year-old girlfriend after and got all of her possessions. You know, sometimes they'll say, uh, you you tend to look for a person that's, you know, women tend to look for a man that's like their father. Men tend to look for a woman that's like their mother. If that's any indication, I really believe she found a pretty accurate representation of her father. The other daughter did a suicide pact with her own husband, uh, but they both followed through. Uh, Marx's own poetry can contain promotion of suicide pacts. Her husband wrote his suicide note with the conclusion I die with the supreme joy of having the certitude that in the way near future, the cause for which I have devoted some 45 years will triumph. Long live communism. Long live international socialism. Long live not me. He didn't put in that last part, but he writes a suicide letter and at the end of it is extolling the idea of international socialism, socialism and communism. This family was torn apart by this man. 
through who he was, through how he acted and behaved in his life, through what he believed. It, it became something that tore them apart psychologically. And I truly believe there is a spiritual connotation to this and it's a direct spiritual influence on this. And you want to know why? Because I've got the proof, guys. Let's get into the spiritual stuff. This is the most interesting. So someday I will cover what communism as a philosophical movement actually thinks about Christianity and what they've done to Christianity. But for right now, we're just going to cover Marx. We're, we're just going to cover his thought process in terms of religion. I'm going to read some of his poetry. You guys like poetry? Yeah, me either. Then I will be able to walk triumphantly like a god through the ruins of their kingdom. Every word of mine is fire and action. My breast is equal to that of the creator. I shall build my throne high overhead. Cold, tremendous shall its summit be. For its bulwark, superstitious dread. For its martial, blackest agony. See this sword? The prince of darkness sold it to me. You may think he, he enjoys the macabre. I'll, I'll put that to rest in a minute or two. With Satan, I have struck my deal. He chalks the signs, beats time for me. I play the death march fast and free. He also wrote a poetic drama, um, Olanum, which is Manello backwards, which is a root word of Manuel. Satanic worship inverts. And you'll notice the inverted cross is, is a Satanist symbol, whether it's, it's just the church of Satan or an actual Satan worship type thing. Um, and this word is linked directly to the anti-Christian Satanic idea. Um, but it's not just in the name. The course of this drama, his hero, Olenum, delivers a remarkable soliloquy. He pours out invective, hatred of the world and of mankind, hatred of creation, and a threat and a vision of total world destruction. It's about a man who makes a pact with the devil. And so I'm going to read just a section of this from this poem. I shall howl gigantic curses on mankind. Ha! Eternity! She is an eternal grief. Ourselves being clockwork, blindly, mechanical, made to be the foul calendars of time and space, having no purpose save to happen, to be ruined, so that there shall be something to ruin. If there is something which devours, I'll leap within it. Though I bring the world to ruins, the world which bulks between me and the abyss, I will smash to pieces with my enduring curses. I'll throw my arms around its harsh reality. Embracing me, the world will dumbly pass away and then sink down to utter nothingness, perished with no existence. That would be really living. And he continues, the leaden world holds us fast and we are chained, shattered, empty, frightened, eternally chained to this marble block of being and we, we are the apes of a cold God. Now, lest you think that this is just happened early on in the stages of his life, 
that this was just his youthful exuberance and he calmed down and he got down to business and, and he settled in. Look at his death. There was no cross on his casket. There were wreaths of communism. Look at how his family died. Pretty much all of his children died. Two of his daughters died in suicide packs. His wife was miserable. He was drinking all the time. He had boils covering him because he wouldn't bathe, because he was dirty, slovenly. He never worked. There doesn't seem to be any redemption of the man because a redemption of the man's heart would have shown a redemption in his behavior and character, right? But there was no redemption. There was just anger and frustration, and it only grew. So much so that his father and Ingalls said he was living with a demon. And the, the Ingalls part of it, Ingalls even wrote a poem about the guy. And this is what he said. Who chases after his tracks with reckless rage? A black man from Trier, a remarkable monster. He neither walks nor hops, but springs upon his heels and stretches high his arms into the air in anger, as though his wrath would seize at once the mighty canopy of heaven and tear it to earth. With clenched and threatening fist, he rages without restraints, as though 10,000 devils had seized him by the hair. There's other stories of men who are actually trapped in a room with Marx. And Marx seems to be going on this just fit of rage, of, of demonic energy. There's a lot of writing about this, this supposed just demonic nature to Marx, the, where he would just explode into rage, that he, he had this just evil presence about him. And he himself talks about just this idea of... of the dark control going on in his life. And so when you look at a man who is described by his own father, as well as his, his lifetime uh, philosophical partner as having demons, we have to wonder, okay, what philosophy was produced out of that heart? And when we look at the philosophy that was produced out of that heart, the philosophy was steal, kill, destroy. He himself said he wanted to walk in the ruins. He compared himself to, on, as an equal of the creator. Sound familiar? So we can't separate the philosophy and say, well, the philosophy is good. The idea is really good. Satan comes as an angel of light. And what's the angel of light saying? I'll, I'll take care of everybody. We'll distribute it equal among everyone. Everybody will be happy because they won't be tied down by work. They won't be tied down by these curses of having to work. Funny. God said to Adam and Eve, Adam, you're going to work by the sweat of your brow. You're going to have to work hard to raise your food. Eve, you're going to have pain in childbirth. And you're going to look to your husband. What does communism try to do? It tries to avoid those. That's why the progressive agenda is so built on destroying the family as well as uplifting abortion. Avoid the consequence. But what you're really doing is you're, you're even going against God and saying, okay, Lord, this is what it's going to be like. 
I'm going to follow you and submit to you. And there will be pains and suffering in this life. And, and I trust you. Instead, you're saying, no, I'll just avoid all that. I'll get my food because Joe Blow over there worked. And, and I'll, we'll spread it all around. Everybody will get equal. You won't have to worry about family. Free sex for everyone. Engels was, was a complete philanderer. He was all over the place. He, he more than Marx wrote about the dissolution of the family and basically sex being, being free for everyone at any time. The more the better. When we get these type of philosophies, a lot of times it looks good and it feels good because it says, hey, we'll take care of everyone. But really what you're getting from it is a source. And that source is a man like Marx. And a man like Marx does not live consistently with the noble aims of his philosophy. You want to know who did that? Christ. Christ lived to the ultimate completion of his aims. And so when we look at the man of Christ, what we look at is a man who lived perfectly, a man who is without sin. We look at a man who gave the most sound philosophical teachings ever. And that's the philosophy that you follow. Now, not just philosophy, but belief and relationship in Christ. But if we're, we're arguing which philosophy works better, rejecting Christ, Christianity, and going with communism, socialism, or accepting Christ and accepting Christianity, I look to the sources. And far away, Christ is the man I want to follow. Marx is the man that I want to get as far away from as possible. I don't need that in my life. And if the way he lived was half of his philosophy, I don't need that in my life. Instead, I'll follow Christ. And I'll live the way that Christ has told me to live. And what Christ produces through me. That philosophy, that life, that belief system is what I'm going to follow which that system holds private property sacred. So much so that there is a commandment in the Ten Commandments determining thou shalt not steal, which means you will not take from somebody else what is not yours, which means there is ownership. You look at the Levitical law, there's plenty in there about possession and how to work with possession, how to trade, how to deal, what, what's yours, what's not yours, how to divvy up the land. So if the Bible is going to describe private property as something that is good, then I'm going to follow that. I'm not going to follow the guy who says abolish all private property, abolish all inheritance. Hey, by the way, give me 50 bucks because I can't make my rent. It's funny, isn't it? People will show you who they are, not just through the words they speak, but by their actions and their character and the fruit of their life. And so that being said, guys, I want you Go ahead and share this with people who are communists or people who are thinking about it, especially if you're young. If you're in high school and your friends are like, yeah, communism or yeah, socialism, you know, capitalist system, down with capitalism. I can do a whole different thing on capitalism um, because Christianity and capitalism are not synonymous. 
but man, they work in partnership a lot better than socialism. But share this with people who, who, who think socialism is the way to go or communism because we have to get back to the founders. We have to get back to the guys who present the philosophical underpinnings, right? And yes, socialism existed before Marx. I completely understand that. But it still didn't work even before Marx. Marx was the one who revolutionized the whole idea. Notice everything seems to now center around Marx. And I would say that's, that's a satanic agenda. And you can call me conspiracy theory. You can call me Alex Jones, right? Marx has turned the whole world communist, right? But there is a satanic agenda to it. And you can't get past the satanic influence on Marx's own life, which would then produce certain results. So guys, I want to thank you so much for tuning in, for watching. I want to thank you so much for supporting, whether you're at the homeschool convention, whether you are just watching because you're a faithful listener, viewer, um, whether you're a new subscriber, old subscriber, thank you guys. And thank you for supporting us for what we do. Um, thank you for not running away when we, when we get itchy on stuff or get a little risky. Uh, do not forget to check out our merchandise. You can get this shirt. And, and you will get plenty of conversations. And now I feel like, hey, maybe I've given you some information that when somebody's like, I like socialism, you say, you know anything about Marx? But get this shirt, 1776truth.store. Do not forget to check out our new website, theselfevidenttruth.com. That being said, I love you guys so much. I'm so thankful for you. Um, Richard, any questions, comments? We good? We're good. All right. I love you guys. Massey will be back here with me next week, Sunday night, 7 p.m. Until then, I love you guys. I'll see you next time.